first reading is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. It will be found in the Bibles in the, on the seats in uh, page 1117. I'm reading from the NIV, large print. This is a very important reading, this first reading, because Paul sets out aspects of prayer in this letter. And I've found that there were at least 12 aspects, so it's worth reading a second time. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle, uh, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossa, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Thanksgiving and prayer. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on, your on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we haven't stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully give thanks to the Lord, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you are able, please stand for the gospel. The Gospel is from Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and will be found on page 983 in the Church Bibles. The Parable of the Good Samaritan On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? The man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on the man. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. In the name of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Do please sit. Um, this morning is a first because Chris and I have been ministerial neighbours since 1998. This is the first time we've led worship together. <laughs> we haven't been avoiding each other, honestly. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I'm going to talk mostly about the epistle. So if you want to have Colossians chapter 1 to hand, it won't hurt. So what we have here is the opening of the letter to the church at Colossae, which had once been a really prosperous town, but by the time Paul knew it, was in decline. It was um, in southern Turkey, not that far from the coast. It no longer exists. It was abandoned in about 1200. There's a big mound of remains there, but nobody's ever bothered to excavate them. So we really don't know very much about the place at all. It seems a shame. There's a little bit of an ambiguity about whether Paul actually went there or not. Did you notice that um, 
in verse 7 and 8. He suggests that he has information from Epaphras rather than direct knowledge himself. And in fact, there is a little bit of a dispute, not that it need concern us, about whether Paul wrote this letter at all. Um, a lot of people think it might have been Timothy. That's not really the point, however. Um, but whoever did write it had, well, let's put it bluntly, had trouble with grammar. <laughs> the whole of the reading this morning, from verse 3 to verse 14, in Greek, is a single sentence, which is a bit of a nightmare if you're trying to translate it. The, the thoughts just run on. And that actually makes it a little bit challenging for the preacher as well. Never mind. Two key things. The first is about fruitfulness, and the second is about the process of salvation. And that's what I want to focus on. So the gospel's compared to a seed. The seed that God planted through the work of Epaphras, who then reports to Paul how it's growing. Now importantly for us, that seed is not infertile. Once planted, the gospel bears fruit. It is in its nature. And it's also the evidence, if you like, that we have received the gospel into ourselves. The works of the gospel are, so to speak, a symptom that you've caught Christianity. Now twice in these 14 verses, a particular word is used to mean to bear fruit. Verses in verse 6, and that refers to the fruit of belief creating new growth within us. And the second in verse 10, in a prayer that you may bear fruit in active goodness of every kind and grow in knowledge of God. Let's put those two thoughts beside each other. Our lives in the gospel produce new spiritual growth and that growth produces fruitfulness. Well, of course, there's a challenge there, isn't there? We need perhaps to pause for a moment and ask ourselves whether the faith as we practice it, us ourselves now, is in fact sufficiently lively for there to be any growth at all. Are we flourishing? And if we are, how is that evidenced to others? Are we living lives that live up to our Lord's expectation that we should not be little glimmers of light, but like great bonfires set on hilltops so that all might see our good works and give glory to the Father? It is a fair question, not a comfortable one, but it is a fair question because if the logic of this passage is correct, then the fruit of our discipleship should be that double outcome that's in verse 10. Active goodness and knowledge of God. That is to say, both our outer lives of relationships and dealings with other people and our inner lives of spirituality 
will be changed. Active goodness and growth in knowledge are two sides of the same thing. Two sides of a life that is being transformed by the relationship which we have with God as individuals and actually as a community of faith as well. How does that come about, that change of focus? It happens because, verse 13, we have been rescued by God from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, in our scriptures we know that domain or realm of darkness is one where there is a lack of knowledge of God, an ignorance of the gospel, a hopeless lack of moral understanding, an absence of relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the means of salvation. Well, there may well be people who are content to remain in that realm of darkness, with its absence of compassion, its lack of ethical demand, its distance from fulfilment. But many would seek to escape, to turn to the light which Christians know to be the Saviour himself. A conversion of life is an acceptance of the offer of salvation from God through the self-giving love of the Saviour mediated to us by the Holy Spirit. It is when, if you like, the seed of the gospel is planted. We have an opportunity offered to us by God's grace to relocate from one realm, the nasty one of darkness, into the other the light-filled kingdom of God. And that idea of moving from one realm to the other is the basic way that Paul handles the change in a person that comes about when they make a Christian commitment. Further, the fruits of Christian life are declared by our transformed lives. And that has the effect, in a circular kind of way, of once again proclaiming the gospel. That proclaimed gospel has impact on its hearers. It generates faithful living, because faith has been quickened. Quickened by the word preached and received. And I'm sure you realise that in biblical understanding, fruitfulness is always connected to faithfulness, while disobedience and idolatry invariably result in fruitlessness. And you might reflect that the language of fruitfulness goes all the way back to the beginning of the story, doesn't it? Creation is invited to be fruitful and to multiply in Genesis. The first, first words spoken in scripture to humanity, the primal blessing, you might say, is be fruitful, fill the earth. 
when the gospel's proclaimed, it brings life, not death. Indeed, when people grow in gospel wisdom and understanding, they lead lives worthy of Jesus, lives that bear fruit in that fascinating phrase of active goodness. The creative word, the word of God, that calls forth the world and a people of fruitfulness is spoken anew in the gospel and it bears fruit. The fruit of a new humanity who themselves bear the fruit of good work in every dimension of life whatever our situation or our culture might be. And what might that look like? Well, actually, of course, we don't really need to go much further than today's gospel, do we? What is it like, as in the words of verse 6, when the gospel has come close to us? I imagine that between us, we've heard a fair number of sermons on the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think there's three of us here who will probably knock up at least a hundred or so between us over the years. Well, let's just ask ourselves this morning what the changed life makes of that particular coming close of the gospel the Samaritan knows what should be done for the injured traveller. There's no fine debating, no concern about crossing social boundaries. He does not treat the traveller as someone other. He treats him rather as his own brother. He knows what should be done and he gets on with it. He stops, takes action, makes provision for the future of this person, who he doesn't know, but toward whom his behaviour is entirely that of active goodness. I have a suspicion that we can all too easily be sidetracked by the details of the story and thereby lose the point of it. Christ told this story to change our lives. He told it to change our behaviour. He calls on us now continually to make our relationships to be like those of this Samaritan person who is simply good because he knows it's the right thing to do. And yes, our Lord's first hearers of this story would have been shocked by it. But that might be why he told it the way he did. You know what he said. The second commandment is that you shall love your neighbour as much as you love yourself. And your neighbour is that person, any person, who needs your aid. There's no conditionality about it. There are no exceptions. There is no excusing oneself. So to sum up, the evidence of the changed life 
is obedience to Christ's command. We simply must open ourselves to the power of God's Spirit to change us, to make us loving and to make us fruitful. And as we come this morning to our Lord's meal of grace, we open ourselves to that very blessing by accepting his bread of life and cup of salvation, which are means of grace to enable us to grow, to grow in faith, knowledge, and in service. And afterwards... It always fascinates me, you know, people, that door over there, people think it's the exit from the church. It isn't, it's the entrance to the world. And that's where we're sent. We're sent out into the world that is in desperate need of the good news of the gospel. So pray for ourselves this morning that as we go through the entrance into the world, we may do that as a fruitful, obedient people, praying that God may now bless us so that we may be a blessing in his world. Amen. <laughs>